uh, I think most people in evangelicalism, when they see a squirrel, thinks of Gene Clyde. It's really strange when you think about it. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. Good to be with you. It is Monday, the 6th day of February, 2023. And as you can tell, if you're watching on the video, I, well, I'd like to say that I got my camera problems fixed, but I didn't. When I fired everything this up this morning, there were my settings, and everything was right where they should have been instead of that wide shot we had Friday morning. So all I can figure is when I fired up the computer on Friday, something didn't load right because I obviously hadn't lost the settings because here we are. <laughs> Good to be with you. It is, as I said, Monday morning, and this is Squirrel Chatter a podcast dedicated to scripture, history, theology, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. I hope you had a wonderful day yesterday at church. Um, I was up at Camp Utmost at the uh, Winter Youth Retreat, a combined junior high school and high school retreat. Um, and, and it looked like we had, for for... The boys, I know we had two cabins of junior high and one cabin of high school, and I think the girls were pretty much distributed the same way. Um, good group of kids had uh, in my cabin. I had several boys who had been there uh, over the summer, so it was good to see them again. My co-counselor, um, Noah, was also in my cabin last summer, so we knew each other. Unfortunately, he got food poisoning before he got to camp on Friday, and he spent all day Saturday in his bunk, pretty much. Um, so I was counseling on my own, but uh, it was good to have him in the cabin to in, at night. And he, but he went he went up and down. There were times when he was feeling pretty good, and he would come in and participate and stuff. And then he would go, I got to go lay down, and would disappear again. And he left early yesterday morning, so we're praying that Noah is feeling better. Um, he's a great young man. Um, it was good to see him again. I'm just sorry <laughs> that he was feeling poorly. Um, but uh, So anyway, Squirrel Chatter. We webcast every day at 7.30 a.m. on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And then the podcast is posted and you can download it from most of your major podcast sources. And we are a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. I always want to encourage you to head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com because you're going to find doctrinally sound, curated podcasts, um, which, you know, we're not, not mono- uh, theological. There are theological differences on secondary and tertiary image uh, uh, doctrines, but you are going to have the core beliefs of salvation, God, the Trinity. You're not going to be hearing anything weird or aberrant 
on a podcast at uh, the Christian Podcast Community. So I encourage you to head on over there and check that out. It is Monday. We've got Monday meanderings today. We're going to be looking at a variety of things. Things that happened over the weekend while I was away. Uh, things that happened in the world over the weekend while I was away. Got some interesting stuff coming up. So let's go ahead and get started, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Mm. Coffee. Coffee is always good. All right, let us pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. All right. And now we have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, Volume 1. Our reading today is Preparation for Testing. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew 4.1 Dr. MacArthur writes, one of life's important truisms is that strong temptation tends to follow every major personal triumph. The Apostle Paul warns, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. In the aftermath of significant successes, we are often tempted to think the accomplishment came solely by our own strength and ingenuity. But just when we think success is here to say, we become vulnerable to pride and failure. Even Christ in his incarnation was not exempt from testing, such as what came on the heels of his God-affirming baptism. In a parallel passage, Mark says immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. It's Mark 1.12. Mark's use of impelled denotes the necessity of the Lord's temptation or testing. Although the testings would come from Satan, it was God's will that Jesus undergo them in advance of his earthly ministry and redemptive work. So after his ministry and person had been validated by the Father and the Spirit at the scene of his baptism, Jesus confronted the first great challenge to his mission. Our Savior was not intimidated by the prospect of temptation, but fully conscious of his divine mission and strengthened in his humanity by the abiding presence and power of God. That is what Satan sought to forever undermine and destroy. Ask yourself, what specific temptations often awaken in your own heart following times of encouragement or accomplishment? How do you deal with them and defeat them? May God be seen as your continual supply, even at times when you are tempted to think you can manage on your own. Good word this morning from Dr. MacArthur. All right, Monday meanderings. Busy, busy weekend. Obviously, I was up at the Camp Upmost Winter Youth Retreat. Um, I think I mentioned Friday morning. 
that I had received an email Thursday night that uh, I was uh, I was going to be doing the devotions for the 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 boys on Saturday and Sunday, fifteen or twenty minutes before breakfast. The uh, the boys were gathered in the chapel. The girls were upstairs in the loft, and they had morning devotions before. Uh, you know, separate morning devotion, which is a good thing because in a co-ed camp, um, in the general sessions, you you want to talk about things that are um, a concern for young people in general. In the devotional time, when they were we were segregated by sex, it's good to talk about a few things that are specific to boys or girls. Now, Saturday morning was very much um, a, a gospel presentation. Um, I, I, I wanted to be clear about the gospel. I, uh, I was driving up there on Friday and it just, you know, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The communication, the clear and articulate communication of the gospel is always my top priority at these camps um, and youth gatherings. But uh, yeah, I had a, had a good time. Um, so Saturday morning was, was straight up gospel, um, which I concluded with repent and believe. And if you've been listening to Squirrel Chatter at any, any great length of time, you have heard me present the gospel. And so that was that was what I did that morning, um, and then we had a great day Saturday. I mean, basically this this was a one day retreat. It wasn't you know a full blown camp. We had one general session Friday night. We had, I think, a morning and an evening session on Saturday, and then we had a morning session Sunday morning. And, and so those were the general sessions, you know, not a lot of, not a lot of teaching time, um, cause you really only had one full day. Um, so, you know, you do what you can, right. And, uh, they were, they were late nights. We had, you know, popcorn at night and, and, and everything. And, and several of the counselors gave their testimonies. Um, but the thing that, you know, it, it's always my focus is always to make sure that the gospel is communicated when I'm speaking. And so I was endeavoring to do that. So that's what I did Saturday morning. Now, Sunday morning, my devotion, I took, I walked them through Psalm one, but, uh, because I wanted them to, you know, when you leave here, you're, you're leaving into a hostile world. Uh, more about that here in a little bit. We're, we're, the world we live in is hostile to Christ and to Christianity. And, you know, so it is tempting to walk in the way of the wicked, to, you know, to walk in the... I, I Don't ask me to quote it. I'd have to look it up. <laughs> I have trouble quoting scripture from memory, as most of you know of my dyslexia and memory issues. I cannot rote memorize stuff, but you know you have the 
the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. And, and that's the world. That's teachers at school and professors at universities. That's the news anchors. That's the Hollywood elite. That's the politicians. So we're looking at a world that is anti-Christian. And so don't get your ideas about how to look at things and how to think about things and what to do from the world. Instead, you get it from God's word. You know, it, on, on God's law, the blessed man meditates day and night. It's a delight. So that was my, uh, my uh, devotion for Sunday morning. But one thing I, I told the boys, um, because it's important, and I'm using boys as a, um, not a term of maturity, I'm using it as a term of sex, you know, boys and girls. There are only two sexes, boys and girls. God made them male and female. So when I say boy, I'm not talking about maturity, I'm just talking about maleness. I told the boys, grow up. This world does not need any more immature 20 and 30 year old boys. And there I'm using boys as a level of maturity. What the world desperately needs is a lot more mature young men. And, and they can be that. I know there are, there's, a, there's been studies that talk about the, the physical maturity of not just the body, but of the brain. And they talk about, you know, now I am not a neurologist, okay? I'm not even close to a neurologist. I have met a few neurologists, and that's about the extent of that. My, my area of study was history, uh, and now theology. Um, but there, there have been neurological studies that talk about the maturity of the brain and they say that young people really can't think clearly until they're in their mid-twenties, et cetera, et cetera. And while I have no doubt that there is a maturing process to the physical hardware of the brain, and that probably does affect thinking ability the same way there's a maturing process to the physicality of the body, which affects physical things. At the same time, I think that has been used as an excuse. It's been used as an excuse for immature behavior, which historically was never like it is today. This extended adolescence, this, this lack of responsibility and maturity and mature behavior in young people that really began, I hate to say it, it began post-World War II. It began, and, and in a lot of ways, we can, we can talk about when modernity happened, but the world changed post-World War II. And there are a lot of factors in that. 
Um, and that's probably a discussion for another time to go into all of it. But it was at that time that quote-unquote teenage culture began. And there were a lot of factors involved, again. Um, but I think that the, the, the teenage culture that began in the 50s led directly to the sexual revolution of the 60s and has led directly to the 32-year-old boy living in his mom's basement playing video games today. And the, 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 the mature behavior of young people prior to the 1950s is very, very evident in history. You know, by the time most boys or high school seniors today, in the 1800s, they were married and, and starting families and, and being responsible. Now, do they still have stuff to learn? Sure. I'm 57 years old. I still have stuff to learn. And there are times when I'm not acting as mature as I ought to. And I'm not talking about goofing off and having fun. I'm just talking about there are times I don't do things that I should. Um, there are times that I am ir irresponsible. And that's true of everybody. But this acceptance of childish behavior in older, older boys and young men is detrimental to our society. And it is something that we need to urge our young men to, to be more mature. And everybody says, well, you can't, you know, this is, uh, and, and I'll talk about this in a minute too. This is something that, you know, you, this is just normal. It's not normal. Young people can be taught to be mature and responsible. And I see it every day. Because I could tell, Mark, I know a lot of homeschool kids. And the homeschool kids I know are, in the main, much more mature and responsible than the public school kids of the same age. They're not, you know, robots. They're not, you know, and, and again, you see cutting up and irresponsible behavior from time to time. But. It was clear to me this weekend at the retreat. Probably half or more of the kids were homeschooled. And you could see a difference in mature versus immature behavior and attitudes. So don't tell me it's all brain. It's not all physical. Yeah. There are... The, the ability exists for young people to act more mature. And now I do, even in the public school and working in the public school settings for so many years, I have noticed that girls do grow up before guys do. Emotionally and, and, and intellectually. They begin to act more mature before the guys do. Um... But how much of that is physical and how much of that is culturally induced? You know, the young, young men need to grow up. And so that was my message Sunday morning. 
as part of walking through Psalm 1. Um, I actually started my devotional that way. I played off the fact, blessed is the man. So I took the word man, walked him through what I just said about maturity. And then I said, that has nothing to do with Psalm 1, but it needed to be said. And then we walked through Psalm 1. So that was, and, and but had a great time at camp, got home last night. Uh, or got home yesterday afternoon, just before dinner, and uh, was absolutely exhausted. And I was laying in bed watching Abner Chow's evening message at Grace Community Church last night. And I'm sorry, Abner, I fell asleep. I will listen when it's posted. It was like, this is really good stuff. And I was gone. So <laughs> I will get back and listen to that when I have a chance. Well, also during the weekend, um, it was just starting to hit the news, uh, I think Wednesday or Thursday. I actually hadn't been f uh, following it, and I got a text from a friend. Hey, did you see the spy balloon that went over Montana? And I'm like, spy balloon? And I said, you know, that I wouldn't have been able to see it from here. It was overcast, but we had the... Chinese spy balloon that flew across America this last week. And it was, apparently, they first spotted it over Alaska, and it floated down across Canada, entered American airspace over Idaho. Well, I guess it entered American airspace over Alaska, but then it, it, it entered the continental United States over Idaho, floated down across Idaho, Montana, through like South Dakota, Kansas, just, you know, and finally out to sea somewhere in the Carolinas. And again, I wasn't following it because I was at camp, but it got shot down after it went out over the ocean, after it achieved its mission. <laughs> We're going to let it fly over the whole country. Do you think it wasn't communicating home? It wasn't like it was carrying film back that had to be developed like like reconnaissance planes in World War II. No, they had to, you know, or even, you know, 1960s U2s and stuff, they had to get the film back and develop it. But with satellite communications and digital, remember, China is a spacefaring nation. They have put up their own astronauts and their own spacecraft. They have satellites. They are more than capable of of uh, having information transmitted from their balloon, and but it it didn't even go public until it had been spotted over Montana by civilians who started taking pictures and stuff. And I remember seeing I think the first picture um, on Thursday last week after somebody had asked me if I'd seen the spy balloon. And I went and looked at the pictures, and the first thing I thought about was somebody had taken a picture of the International Space Station flying in front of the moon because this payload had all these solar panels and stuff out of it. And I've seen similar pictures of the International Space Station backlit by the sun or backlit by the moon. But no, that was the the payload hanging underneath this 100-foot diameter balloon. Now, this thing was 60,000 feet up. That's like 
twice the altitude most commercial jets, you know, most commercial jets are flying around 30,000 feet. And this is 60,000 feet up. Yet people saw it from the ground 11 miles away. That's how big it was. This big white balloon. Now, obviously, it was, you know, catching sunlight and gleaming up there. And I'm sure it was the reflected light that made it visible. But once people focused binoculars and cameras and stuff on it, they got a nice clear view of it. So the Biden administration said they were, you know, this is, China has, has said it was theirs. So there were immediately urges from the Biden administration to shoot it down. And the White House has said that on Wednesday, the president said shoot it down. But the Pentagon said, we don't want to do that because we don't want to, you know, it's not a threat physically. You know, it's not like a bombing mission where we need to shoot it down to keep it from getting to its target. Is it? We don't want to shoot it down because we don't want it to damage civilians on the ground. We don't want to risk having it plummet to the ground or hurt anybody. So they wanted to wait until it got over the ocean. Well, of course, by the time it got over the ocean, it's flown over countless military bases and nuclear facilities. And, you know, Montana, <laughs> Maelstrom Air Force Base outside of Great Falls controls I don't know how many missile silos in Montana. Um, when I was in high school, we used to say that if Montana was an independent nation, it would have been the number four nuclear power on Earth because of the number of bombs Montana had. Um, and I've seen and driven past missile silos. I mean, there are places driving around eastern Montana, you can see them from the highway. And if you know what you're looking for, that little fenced-in area over there is the top of a missile silo. And there's a, uh, I don't know what the current intercontinental ballistic missile in our arsenal is. It uh, used to be uh, Minutemen and uh, MX missiles, but I don't know what the current is. But, I mean, it's, they're all over the place, and this missile was floating right over, or this balloon was floating right over them. Well, here's the thing about shooting it down when it first entered U.S. airspace. There's probably not a better place to do that than Montana. Remember, Montana is almost the size of California. Yet... Montana only has the population of one million people. It would have been very easy to shoot down this balloon over unpopulated farm or wilderness. Right now, they've got Navy divers trying to recover everything from 50 feet of water off the coast of the Carolinas. If they'd have shot it down... In Montana, it would have been easy to spot impact zones in the snow on the ground. So maybe that was it. They'd just rather go swimming in the Atlantic uh, further south than digging through the snow up here this time of year. 
But yeah, interesting, interesting thing. Folks, we are in a real Cold War that is every bit as intense as the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union during the, the 50s through the 80s. And we need to realize that. As, uh, as I heard somebody say last week, yeah, what do you call the guy in a fight who doesn't know he's in a fight? The loser. <laughs> we need to be aware of the fact that China is our enemy. They have a completely different worldview. They have completely different goals in the world. And we need to really become aware of the threat that China poses. They own how much of our debt, national debt. You know, the government keeps going to raise the debt ceiling this week. And it's probably going to go through at some point. They're going to make a deal with the White House. And they're going to raise the debt ceiling so that the government can borrow and spend more money that we don't have when we're already trillions of dollars in debt, a lot of that debt is owed to China. So there we have serious national security implications, especially as threatening and aggressive as the current Chinese regime is. This is not even the China of 10 years ago. This is a much more totalitarian, much more militant, much more aggressive China than we've really ever dealt with before. And it's something we need to be aware of, and it's something that we need to, to step up our awareness of, if that makes sense. And, and, and put ourselves more, not on a war footing, but put ourselves more, put our nation more on a Cold War footing. Um, we need to get our manufacturing out of China. You know, you, your iPhone, your iPad, you know, so much of that stuff is made in China these days because of cheap labor. And, and we need to get that manufacturing back here. Um, and I've talked about that before. So, you know, be aware, we are in a Cold War. Okay, another thing that's just been going on in my mind lately as I'm watching, you know, it's it's 2023. It's February of 2023. The 2024 presidential election cycle is kicking off. Um, of course, there's not going to be any primary votes or anything until 2024. Um, right now, it's the beginnings of campaigning. I believe there are only two official candidates who have actually said they're running for president on the Republican side and only one on the Democrat side. The, president Biden has said he's running again. There's still speculation on whether or not he actually will run again, but he intends to. President Trump is running again, and he has not only said he's running, he is starting to have campaign rallies and give speeches, and he's getting the, the whole campaign mechanism up and running. 
And then I guess ne last week, uh, Nikki Haley came out and announced that she is running for president. And so that's really the only official candidates so far. But I'm hearing all over the place, both the never Trumpers and the only Trumpers getting their trumpets out. <laughs> um, several uh, prominent Republicans, um, Chris Christie, governor of New Jersey among them, have come out and publicly said that there is no way that Donald Trump can beat Joe Biden. Personally, I think he beat him last time, but that's a different story altogether. He could have beat him more, except for the fact that President Trump went along with the COVID lockdown and stuff during 2020. I think if he'd have, if he'd have stood up, if 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 Donald Trump had done what Grace Community Church did, where you get the initial reports, and okay, yeah, we're 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 going to look at this. We close down within a couple of months. You realize it's not nearly as bad as they were predicting. And so you open everything back up. Uh, Donald Trump would have had a resounding victory. It would have been beyond the margin of cheating, to put it that way. Um, but as it is, it was, it was close enough that the, the, the cheating was able to put Joe Biden over the top. And yes, I do think there was serious election fraud in the 2020 election. And yes, I believe that there was enough fraud to tip the balance. There are books on it. I've got books on it. If you haven't read Molly Hemingway's Rigged, or uh, I've got uh, Christina Babb's new book. I have not read it yet on the, the, um, on the whole 2020 election and things that need to be done, the things that need to be fixed. Our election system is broken and needs to be fixed. And it was broken intentionally by forces that want to be able to control the elections and not allow the American people free and honest elections. But they want to control the outcome. And, and I, yes, I'm saying clearly I believe that happened. So... So we got the never Trumpers who, you know, oh, Trump can't win. We need somebody else. We need somebody else. Then we have the only Trumpers. And the only Trumpers are like, only Donald Trump can fix things. Only, you know, that's not true either. So here's, here's my position right now. I don't, I'm not backing a horse in this race yet. First off, not everybody who's running has announced Secondly, you know, the, the, the goal is to beat the Democrats and get control of the White House back and control of the Senate. So we need to keep the infighting, and there, there's going to be arguments about who, who, which candidate is better, this one or that one, and that's legitimate. Be clear about who you prefer and why. But be for your candidate much more than you are against the other candidate. Negative campaigning 
hurts in the general election. What do I mean by that? Negative campaigning in the primary hurts in the general election. Go back to some of the elections in the past where you know things have happened. I'm going to go back to the uh, um, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton race in 1992, which seems like almost ancient history to most of us. We're talking 30 years ago. 30 years ago, man, that, that just, that floors me. <laughs> that really floors me. But in 1992, during the Democrat primary election, a Democrat ran a, an anti-Bill Clinton ad, which talked about a convicted murderer who was released from prison in Arkansas because of a Bill Clinton policy, who then went and committed more crimes, I think including murder. And this convicted murderer's name was Willie Horton, or convicted criminal. I, I'd have to go back and I don't remember the specifics of the case. So this was brought up by somebody in the Democrat primaries who was running against Bill Clinton in the primaries. Well, the George W. Bush campaign picked up that story, or if the campaign or, or some pack or something picked up that story and used that same story in the general election against Bill Clinton. Now, it didn't cost Clinton the election. Um, in fact, it got turned and used against Bush accusing him of racism because the Willie Horton happened to be black, um, which had nothing to do with the story. And it, it didn't, I mean, it doesn't matter. They're going to call the conservative racist or the Republican racist. Not that, see, and here's the thing. George H.W. Bush was not a true conservative any more than George W. Bush was. There were many, they were globalists. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're not true conservatives. Um, in the John McCain, Mitt Romney wing of the party. And we've seen that in George W. Bush's never Trumper status against Donald Trump, um, which has been a bad thing because there were all sorts of shenanigans between the Trumps and the, the Bushes and, and it's, it's not a pleasant bit of history. But George H.W. Bush was a much better president than Bill Clinton, even though George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush only had one term. Um, I, I not being a globalist myself, I can still admire the way that George H.W. Bush handled the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, now, a lot has gone wrong in the 30 years since, but at the time the Soviet Union was breaking up, he handled it well um, in not taking a victory lap, in not being triumphant 
in attitude, but rather being welcoming and helpful. You know, trying to help Boris Yeltsin bring liberty to the former Soviet Union. Now, you know, a lot of that ground was lost. I mean, they've had a dictator in Vladimir Putin uh, for the last, you know, 20, 15, 20 years. I'm not sure how long Putin's been in power. But they, they at the beginning, there was hope. And um, George W. George H.W. Bush's, Bush 41's policy towards the the former Soviet Union, I think, helped not crush that hope. Um, eventually, the Russian people did it to themselves, but at that time, there was hope. And I don't, you know, and, and I think if he'd have gotten four more years, there would have been more advance on that front. But that's neither here nor there, and that's the great what-if question of historians. But be clear about why you prefer the candidate you prefer without being unjustly or unduly critical of the candidate you oppose. Let's be honest. Let's be consistent. Let's accurately represent all the political, uh, political positions in the election without demonizing the people. Let's avoid ad hominem. And, and, and let's stick to the issues. Um, because conservatism will win on the issues. And, and we don't need to stab each other in the back. There's been way too much of that, in my opinion. All right, finally this morning, and I hinted about this when I was talking about camp, there is a serious need for Christian schools. I was reading an article last week about Roman Catholic schools and the reason for Roman Catholic schools and Roman Catholic school enrollment, et cetera, et cetera. And this was a, a uh, article that came out that, that said that, that Catholic school, Roman Catholic school uh, enrollment is going up for the first time in decades. And then I heard a, a political commentator, not a Roman Catholic, but he was talking about, you know, just the whole general idea of government education. Excuse me. And they were talking about prayer in school and Bible reading in school and how that was not at all unusual up until the 1960s, that you would have Bible classes in schools, that you had prayer in schools. I mean, we, we've, I'm old enough to remember that. Of course, I was going to, <laughs> I, was, I was in first grade at a Presbyterian school, so I, I uh, um, mom was a, my, my Southern Baptist mother was a first grade teacher at a Presbyterian school, and it was a good school. And that's where my sisters and I went to school when we lived in Atlanta. And uh, I did not attend public school until we 
briefly lived in Macon, Georgia, before moving to Montana in the mid-70s. And I'll tell you, going from that Presbyterian school to the public school in, in Macon was a huge eye-opener. Oh, big-time eye-opener. Um, I mean, I was only 10, 11 years old, and I noticed the change. I noticed the change in behavior in the classrooms and in the hallways. I noticed the change in attitudes among the students. Um, the, 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 the lowered expectations, the, the, I mean, you know, we had a few playground fights at the Presbyterian school. There were serious playground fights at the public school in Macon just about every day. Um, I never heard of anybody pulling a knife or anything, but it was, you know, we're talking fourth, fifth grade here. So, you know, which of course is not exactly a, you know, you can get knife fights in fourth, fifth grade now. So I've been in both parochial and private schools. But prior to the 1950s, 1960s, you had in the public schools a overtly Protestant religious worldview. Now, I'm not saying that there were, you know, doctrine, but worldview. Um, you know, not, not that we're, we're not dealing with a vast number of, you know, actual born-again, regenerate, Bible-believing Christians, but there was a general positive attitude for Christianity in general and Protestantism specifically. Now, in the 1800s, the height of immigration to our, our United States, the late 1800s, the Industrial Revolution, the Ellis Island, and all of these immigrants coming over, you had vast numbers of Roman Catholics coming to the United States from Italy and Ireland specifically. So the Irish immigrants and the Italian immigrants were Roman Catholic predominantly. The, the British, whose colonies these began as, were Protestant. And we know, I mean, you know, many of the New England colonies were Puritan in their origin, the Massachusetts Bay Company and all of that. So we've had, you know, America began very much Protestant and is again still, you know, still Roman Catholicism is still a minority today. But at the time you had this influx of Roman Catholic immigrants from mainly from Ireland and, and from Italy and they came to fear that American public schools, which were at that time much more Protestant than they are today and a lot less secular than they are today, they had a fear that the public schools were going to alienate the Roman Catholic children from their religion and their culture. Now, in the early 1960s, the Roman Catholic Church schools reached the peak of their enrollment. They had 
more than 5.2 million students, and this is this is these are numbers from the Catholic Education Association that I found online. Peak enrollment was early 1960s with more than 5.2 million students. And they estimated that well over 80% of Roman Catholic children were in Catholic schools. So the Catholics had built across the United States a network of Roman Catholic schools. And I, we, I remember growing up and hearing jokes about how mean the, the nuns were in Catholic schools and blah, 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 you know. And so we had this network of private religious schools covering our country because the Roman Catholics feared that American education would alienate their kids from Roman Catholicism. Well, in the 1960s, those fears were starting to go away. You had John F. Kennedy, the first Roman Catholic president, was elected to the United States. And you had a, 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 a ecumenical movement that began to soften the criticisms of Roman Catholicism. You had all sorts of things. You know, I mean, you had Billy Graham had Roman Catholics on the platform when he was doing his crusades in the 50s and 60s and even up to, he was partnering with Roman Catholic churches right up until the end of his public ministry um, prior to his death because of that ecumenical movement and that lack of, of doctrinal clarity and doctrinal distinctions. So after the 1960s, after that peak enrollment in the early 60s, it began to decline. Um, it was down like, you know, half of that two, two something million when, uh, in 1990 and then, you know, got down below 2 million students in Roman Catholic schools and over 40% of the Roman Catholic schools, mostly elementary schools, high schools have had a longer, longer run. It seems like, and the high schools have remained more popular um, the local Roman Catholic high school in Missoula, Loyola Sacred Heart, um, I think their enrollment is, um, well, I'm sure it's majority Roman Catholic. They have a large number of non-Catholic students enrolled there. So the high schools stayed, you know, just for the quality of the education. So the high schools stayed more prominent, but many of the elementary schools have closed. Well, beginning in 2020, with the public school shutdown and all of the masks and all of the COVID stuff, the enrollment in Roman Catholic schools began to increase. And we didn't just see it there. We saw it in Protestant uh, parochial schools also that you begin to see um, and, and private schools in general, we're seeing uh, an increase in enrollment in response to the public schools. And, and you've had a bunch of stuff since then, you know, I mean, you go back tonight uh, to 
2019, I don't remember hearing a lot about transgender students. But boy, that sure has hit the stage since 2020. So all of these things started coming in. And I know that there was a lot of it was, was public awareness began to be raised. I think a lot of the, the, the uh, school, board school board revolts that we began to see after the 2020 thing, the, the, all the news that was coming out of like Loudoun County, Virginia, and other school boards where the parents were, were suddenly asking all these questions and causing uncomfortable moments for the school board members and leading to the school board members having parents arrested and the Biden White House having the FBI investigate parents as possible terrorists, um, <laughs> which still... Uh, there are things in this world that just make me angry, and totalitarianism is rapidly becoming one on the top of the list. Um, a lot of it was because the kids were home during... COVID lockdowns, but they were doing the distance learning and watching classes on, on Zoom, the parents were suddenly seeing and hearing a lot of the stuff that their students were being taught. Because I think parents had assumed that their kids were getting the same stuff in school today that the parents did 10, 15 years earlier. And that turned out not to be the case. It has changed. Just like I was not taught the same thing that my parents were taught when they were in high school in the 1950s, when I was in school in the 80s, kids today are not being taught what kids were being taught in the 90s when many of their parents were young, 90s and early 2000s. So right now, enrollment in Catholic schools, Roman Catholic schools, is 1.68 million students, and that's up 4% from the previous year. So in the last few years, they've seen the first real increase in enrollment in decades. And what I wanted to point out is there is a lesson in this for us. And I was thinking about that this weekend when I was looking at Psalm 1, uh, getting ready for Sunday's devotional up at camp. And I was looking at the, the, the way of sinners, the, the, you know, the path of sinners, the way of, way of the wicked, the, the seat of the scoffers, and thinking about how anti-Christian, not non-Christian, but anti-Christian, our schools are. Our schools are under, and by our schools, I mean our public schools the schools that are supported by our taxpayer funds, the, the corner school that, that you send and many, of you, many people send their kids to, even in rural areas like Montana, those public schools are undermining biblical values. They are destroying a biblical worldview. They are actively working to separate children from their parents in regards to worldview and world understanding and to teach their children things that the parents do not approve of. And it's gotten to the point where it's actually starting to happen by force. We have seen in Canada parents being 
you know, children being removed from their parents because the parents do not support the child's quote unquote transgenderism and gender morphology, whatever it might be. And the government says, you know, well, then you're no longer fit to be a parent. And we're, we're going to see that here. That's going to happen here. I think there's a case in Texas where a divorced couple are fighting over their young son because the mother insists that the young son is a daughter and um, is pushing to allow the daughter to transgender. The father is against that, or the son to transgender. It gets so confusing at the language sometimes. The son, the the wife, ex-wife claims that the son is really a daughter. The father opposes that, and the courts have ruled that the father can have no contact with his son because the father is interfering with the son's right to say he's a girl. And from everything that I've been able to read, the son's not even saying he's a girl. The mom is saying the son is a girl. It's, it's bizarre. But this is no accident. This undermining of the biblical worldview is intentional, and it's been going on for a century. Um, you know, the, the, the Scopes monkey trial and the arguments for the teaching of evolution, that was the 1920s, wasn't it? I think so. It's been a while since I've looked at the history of that case, but I think that was the 1920s. And some of the interesting things that came out of that during that trial um, was the fact that, you know, if we look back on it now, everything that the quote-unquote scientists, the pro-evolution forces, everything they used as evidence to support evolution has since been shown to have been false or outright fabricated. I think one of the ones they used, uh, there was Nebraska man. And uh, that was apparently a, a, that was a speculative hominid that had lived in the middle America, mid Midwest of America in prehistoric times. Well, it turned out the only evidence for Nebraska man was a single tooth and Upon further examination, that tooth turned out to be a pig tooth. So <laughs> the Nebraska man was not real. And that's just one of, the, one of the evidences that was put forth in favor of evolution during the Scopes trial that has been shown to be false. But evolution is undermining um, a biblical worldview. In fact, here's the thing. All right, I was doing a lot of Q&A with the, the kids during, uh, we had breakout sessions. We'd have a general session, then we'd have a breakout session. And I had my whole cabin in the breakout session because we were supposed to split the cabins in half, and each counselor would take half of the cabin. But as I mentioned earlier, Noah was sick. <laughs> so I took the whole cabin for the breakout sessions. And in some of the Q&A, you know the biggest questions I got? Evolution. How do you explain this? How do you explain that? I had multiple evolution questions. Thankfully, it's a subject I've studied. I was able to, to address their things. But 
you know, the, the, the why? Why was that the big question that I got? Because of the public schools and what they teach. They, they teach materialism. Um, the whole sex education program. See, the, the trouble with sex education, if they were only teaching, if they were only teaching the, the mechanics, if you will, of sex and the biological realities of, you know, egg and sperm and procreation and, you know, if that's all they taught, I don't know if anybody would have a problem with that. The trouble is that's not been all they taught and that's not been all they've taught for decades. They are not only teaching mere mechanics, they're teaching on sexual immorality. They're their sexual ethics are promoting promiscuity and immorality, and they are undermining a biblical worldview, and they're undermining the parents' um, ability to pass on their worldview to their children. And then, you know, recently this whole, you know, the sex education thing flowed right into the transgenderism, and and the 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 sudden opposition that they, they seem to have been surprised by that all of a sudden you got a lot of people going, hey, wait a minute, no, I, I, this isn't what I want kids to be taught. So we're seeing, you know, the, the, the school board revolts where parents are showing up at school board meetings, being removed by police officers, being arrested, being prevented from speaking, you know, in a free and democratic society the parents of the children who are in school, who are also the voters who vote for these people, are being shut out and locked up. So what it's devolving into is statism. That the state is in charge. That the state is absolute. That the state has all the power and the rights. And that's totalitarianism. That's not a democracy. And I'm not going to get into Federalist Friday. That's for Friday. We can talk about all that stuff later. So what's, what, what's my point here? There is a lesson in what the Roman Catholics did during the, 18th and 19, uh, during the 19th and 20th centuries up until the 1960s that we need to learn from. Because... They were worried about their students the, the going to public schools and being alienated from Roman Catholicism to a much greater degree. Students today are being alienated from Christianity and from their parents. Christian parents should not be sending their kids to public school. And our churches need to tell the parents in our churches, we will help you. And this needs to be a concerted effort to get Christian, the, the children of Christian parents, many of, I mean, we understand, you know, especially as a, 
the Baptist, I, I understand that you know most of these young children of Christian parents haven't made a profession of faith yet. But we need to get them away from the immoral, satanic, anti-Christian secularists that are running our public schools. Now, we can talk about trying to retake our, our school boards and reshape our schools and all that, and that's a worthy effort, and I'm, I'm fine with that, but we need to do something now. And what we need to do now is get our Christian kids out of public schools and into doctrinally sound Christian schools or homeschooling. So our churches need to focus, need to make it a priority to develop and support doctrinally sound Christian schools and to have a massive church support for homeschoolers so that, you know, I can't afford it isn't an excuse. Um, this is saving the next generation. This is a priority. It's second only to evangelism for a church priority. We need to tell people the gospel and we need to protect our kids. And I am becoming more and more strongly convicted along those lines that this is something we need to be doing. All right, well, let's end today with the Collect for Grace as we come once again before our God and ask him to get us through today. O oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, folks, that's Squirrel Chatter for today. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.